1: Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Foom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It's been almost a year since Canada legalized recreational marijuana. Capital initially flocked to the cannabis sector in its early stages, but now marijuana stocks are losing investor credibility. Seaport Global Securities went so far as to say that not all of them will survive. With legalization one year in and nine months of data in hand, we did an industry recap and look ahead with Craig Wiggins. Craig is the managing director of Cannalysts, a website that offers subscribers detailed quarterly credit and cost analysis on all major cannabis industry financial results, including trend and peer-based analysis. We began by asking Craig to explain the work that his firm does.
2: Yeah, we were uh, birthed out of Reddit of all places, and we now have a subscription website where we do some deep dives on the top companies both in Canada and the US and we offer our opinions Uh, we like to say we read financial statements out loud some people don't want us reading them that that loudly
3: fascinating stuff so there's your the way in which you were born the more interesting things that you've just been putting out have really been about well it coincides very much with the demise of some of the stocks that we're seeing and the performance of particularly Canadian cannabis related companies and you're really signaling that inventory here is what's the concern supply glut is high on your agenda why is this happening
2: well first of all when Canada went and legalized cannabis they allowed only flower and a diluted oil form so no edibles tinctures vaping all the things that in a mature cannabis market add up to about sixty percent of the market So, uh, part of the problem is we haven't been offering the consumers what they want but there's another big part of the problem is what the uh... licensed producers the lps are producing the consumers don't want The grade of flour is generally not a grade that you want to sell for smokable form. So a lot of people have been putting it in the vault and hoping for what we call formats 2.0, which rolls out in December of this year, which are all those other formats. Mm. And a lot of investors, I think, are are thinking maybe that's going to save what's going on. But our data is showing that we're already harvesting at an 81% total demand rate, and we've only penetrated or displaced 14% of the legal market. So yes, uh, Carolyn, the inventory is uh, piling up very, very rapidly these days. So Craig, why haven't we seen a little bit more
4: of those other formats? Because I mean, the whole idea with some of these cannabis companies partnering uh, with the beverage companies and just some of the more uh, non-cannabis players out there, was that. You would have beverages and edibles and other things that would appeal to a much broader audience that didn't want to smoke anything, uh, no matter what it was. Uh, when do we get to that point?
2: Well, the first phase of cannabis was rolled out, what, what we call 1.0. That is for a year. So the new legislation drops October 17th of this year with a 60 day window for the products to get queued up and approved by Health Canada such that they can go into distribution late in december so we're really not going to see anything really on the uh, shelves till early january those formats uh, usually constitute about 60 percent of a mature market
5: so, uh, Craig, you guys do some very impressive work into the accounting of cannabis companies. And, of course, like any other new industry, it has its own quirks that make it different from anything else. And I would encourage people to go check out the Cannalists Reddit page where you really dive into it. For someone looking to see who's going to survive the turn, who's going to thrive in sort of a, a 2.0, as you call it, what are the metrics that people really need to look for to see who is starting to build up some momentum and operate? leverage
2: well I I think firstly the first metric is follow the the market share of shipments that your licensed producer makes to retail not necessarily their sales if they come out and say hey we had 20% sales that's great that's not necessarily great because last quarter uh, on a quarter over quarter basis, the retail shipments were up 33%. So it's important that you have a measuring stick. We provide that measuring stick on shipments. Um, also, sales to harvest. And this is a, a metric that might take a couple of quarters to line up if there's some new uh, production coming online. But there's a huge glut of inventory right now. Are you selling a good part of your harvest? are you going to be selling a good part of your harvest when it comes to 2.0 the third metric uh... cash is certainly king the days of the easy raise are gone so you have to keep an eye on the cash burn of your investment mm. And my absolute favorite is adjusted ebitda um, at the end of the day you, you have to be tracking to a positive EBITDA and on your debt horizon and the particular company's debt horizon, it has to be tracking to debt, debt service yeah. or else we're going to have a lot of debt that's not going to get refinanced.
1: This week, U.S. auto sales for September were released and the sector took a big step back. Results were disastrous for leading Asian carmakers Toyota and Honda, which both suffered double digit declines that were worse than analysts anticipated. But that wasn't the only bad news for auto companies. Tesla released its much anticipated third quarter delivery figures, and the good and bad Elon Musk were both on full display. Output hit record levels with 97,000 units. But because Musk had hyped the idea of hitting 100,000, investors walked away disappointed. Shares of Tesla sank on the news. We broke down the numbers with Alan Baum. He's an auto analyst at Baum & Associates and asked if the pace of output for Tesla could still be considered positive.
6: Yeah, I mean, in terms of deliveries, uh, they're okay. Uh, they're, they're obviously trying to hit their uh, their year delivery target of 360 uh, to 400. Obviously, they'll be in the lower end of that. Um, so they'll need to break 100 in the last quarter. Uh, just as they, they tend to move their sales to the end of each quarter, they also tend to go out in the fourth quarter with a bit, bit of a bang. And uh, so I think they'll get there. Of course, the issue is as the Model 3 volumes uh, increase uh, at the expense in part of the right. S and the X, uh, then there's a revenue issues and, and obviously a profit one.
5: Right. That's exactly uh, you anticipated my next question. So just based on what we know from this release, does that give us any further insight into what is you know, still an ongoing concern at Tesla just about how much money they are making or losing and how much money they have?
6: Well, of course, the issue with Tesla is when do we start to be concerned about the present as opposed to the future? And uh, you know, we clearly expect uh, a loss uh, both in this quarter and, and for the year. Um, of course, the idea is that as they hit new markets, as they uh, begin to open the uh, the China uh, operation, which obviously would produce lower cost vehicles, then at some point uh, those those negative uh, results would turn to positive. We aren't there yet, and we probably. Won't be for some time
3: and that's interesting that you started to fold in China there and really the headwinds against the auto sector are looming large we've had numbers out of GM for today yesterday we had the pretty appalling numbers that came out for August for the Japanese automakers here in the United States overall do you think the environment is as dire as many are worrying about for the auto sector right now
6: well, what I did is I combined August and September sales and compared them to last year, and we were basically flat. Uh, the, uh, the, the calendar played tricks on us this year, uh, putting Labor Day and Labor Day weekend into August. So if we're basically flat for the August-September period, we're down about a point and a half uh, in sales uh, through September. The item, though, that we need to pay attention to is that for the last four years, the fourth quarter has been exceptionally strong. Hmm. in terms of seasonally adjusted sales uh, over 17.5 and occasionally over 18 million in some of those months. We're clearly not going to do that this year. Uh, So we're going to end the year right around 17 million or perhaps 16.9. That's a good result. The the concern I have is, of course, that uh, as we look at profit reporting from not just the Detroit 3, but uh, the Germans in particular uh, with the export uh, focus that they have, uh, you know, they're they're all reporting of, uh, profits that are starting to slip. Again, they're not terrible numbers, but yeah. uh, they are starting to turn
4: the other way. So that's 17 million. I mean, that's a nice psychological number. I know that's going to mean a lot, just kind of keeping the streak alive here. But how are we arriving at those numbers? There's been a lot of data out over the last couple of weeks and a report in the Wall Street Journal about how the length of auto loans has gotten longer, now averaging about six years, uh, the amount of debt uh, consumers are taking on to finance these vehicles has gotten to the point where people are really stretched. And that raises the question of how long can this sales growth continue if you already have a consumer that's already tapped out, at least with regards to credit?
6: Well, that that growth is not going to continue. We're going to see continuous drops over the next uh, year, two, three. Um, The the issue, though, is uh, our retail sales have already, for some time period, been on the downside. Fleet sales have picked up. Fleet sales are a little more profitable than they used to be, but they're obviously less profitable than retail sales. On the other hand, the automakers have done a reasonably good job of holding the line on incentives, otherwise that. Uh, that profit reporting would look a lot redder than it is. So yeah, we, we are we are stretching uh, our our uh, the market uh, out to a somewhat uh, uncomfortable place.
5: Helen, real quickly on Tesla specifically, one of the bear arguments for a while has been the emergence of competition. And people look around and say there's a lot of good looking electric cars out there from competitors or imminently going to be unveiled. Do you see that happening? Is there meaningful incursion yet into the space from other companies making competitive products?
6: It depends where Tesla goes with the Model 3, and what I mean by that is that they've, they've kind of hit a plateau on the Model S and the Model X. Uh, the Model 3 uh, is still a luxury vehicle, uh, selling for an average price of, a, of around uh, 45 to 50 before the disappearing uh, tax credit. To the extent that they pull that price down, uh, then there will be some competition going forward. Right now when we when we look at competition we're looking at Audi we're looking at Jag uh, and uh, those those prices are are much higher uh, than what we're seeing in the mainstream uh, for uh, for Tesla Uh, but of course they have the brand value and the experience in manufacturing that Tesla does not and so as the rest of the industry starts to come into a more mainstream position in EVs and we're certainly not there yet and for that matter, neither is Tesla, Uh, then we'll start to see where that stands.
1: This week was a busy one for economic data and it came in soft around the world. Germany's economic woes spread to its services sector, with September PMI coming in below estimates. On the U.S. side, the ISM non-manufacturing index hit a three-year low and missed all estimates. David Levy, chairman of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, took us through all the data before jobs day.
7: Step back, and what is the what is the big part of the uh, picture that's being missed? I think that may right. tie into your theme a little bit here. Uh, and and there's a, generally a lack of understanding of what it is that's happening in the rest of the world and how it's affecting us. We hear a lot about the trade deficits and the trade war and other things. Uh, there's a problem with massively overbuilt balance sheets in the private sector in the entire world. We have a problem here, but it's worse overseas, and it's starting to bring the other rest of the world down. That's why the data keep being worse than expected. It's affecting us directly, but if we are vulnerable, unusually vulnerable, to weakness in our stock markets. Uh, so. Uh, that will will affect us.
5: This is a really important point, and your organization, your firm, you put out this new note, bubble or nothing, which looks at this phenomenon of overinflated asset valuations, and we like to think or massive balance sheets. So we like to think that financial markets are a function of the real economy. And what you're saying is that the real economy is downstream from, from financial markets.
7: Well, I, I, I'm not sure I put it exactly that way. And, and let me also emphasize that this piece is unlike our normal material, sure. as we put out as a white paper. This is for public consumption. Sure. Anybody can read a bubble or nothing. is really about why the economy has changed, why we're seeing Uh, More and more bubbles in expansions, bigger uh, periods of financial fallout. And it comes down to a structural change that's happened. It goes back all the way to the end of World War II. And that is private sector balance sheets have been growing faster than income for decade after decade. And this actually changes parameters in the economy, starts to make decisions necessarily riskier. And that, that dynamic of what's going on is making this process unsustainable. The inability to keep pushing interest rates down, which you see everyone around the world yeah. is trying to do, to support these balance sheets and keep them expanding, it, we're running out of room to do that. So that's, that's a profound risk that's hanging over financial markets internationally, and it's affecting whatever happens in this cycle, and I'll give you my pro- professional opinions yeah. about that, but it is a fact that balance sheets uh, have become large, they force risk taking, they've undermined returns, made people seek capital gains and that's kind of the world we're living in.
3: Whereas you said the U.S. perhaps isn't as is isn't as dramatically over leveraged as other areas. I mean is it just China that comes to mind that have really oh, China, gotten Canada, great guns?
7: Australia. Uh, Europe has a, uh, uh, unlike the U.S., um, which deleveraged in the private sector. That's yeah. one place we made. We still have enormous leverage, especially in the corporate sector. But we have reduced. Europe did not really deleverage very much, and they had a similar debt situation they've much more kind of just kept things going, rolling it along. So that, uh, we've at least begun a correction process.
4: What, what if we don't get to that correction process in time? Are there sort of enough, are the right tools there to sort of address another crisis, considering mm. that we are, it is sort of a different balance we're dealing well,
7: with? Well, I think if, they, if people, uh, and that's a, a great question, because people are constantly thinking, well, does the Fed have enough bullets? Part of the story is, and if I can think of what uh, Christine Lagarde said, I'm not a fairy. In other words, there's a limit to what central banks can do. Mm-hmm. And people starting to realize there's something that fiscal policy needs to do. But basically, you know, the, there's there's no set of policies that's going to magically make this problem all just turn into a prosperous growth. When balance, asset values have become exceedingly high throughout the economy, uh, uh, s- s- uh, supported by very high interest rates, uh, and people have stopped depending on on interest rates and on uh, operating returns, because they're so low, they're depending on more capital gains, the, the, you come to the end of the game.
5: Let's connect this to the recent data and how people are thinking about the economy, because in the old days, Recessions were like, okay, maybe there was an inventory cycle. Factories made too much stuff, and then they can't sell it. So they have to slow down and lay people off for six months or a year and a half. And then there's a slowdown. The last two recessions we got looked nothing like that. And arguably, the last three recessions, they were asset bubbles that popped. 2008, real estate, 2001 or 2000, uh, dot com stocks. Is this the future of all recessions? We're all looking at this ISM number. We're like, what's going on with the manufacturing sector? This is problematic. We're taking our eye off the ball that the real risk is not going to be some inventory cycle or anything that used to happen to manufacturing, but something on the financial asset. I
7: think that's a great statement, first of all, Joe. Uh, and I, let me just add that what's happened is, uh, right now, uh, the biggest bubble, where, where's the housing bubble this yeah. cycle? I would say it is in uh, the emerging markets, And it is in, uh, generally speaking, in corporate debt around the world where people have in order this hunger for yield, which comes right out of these overbuilt balance sheets, which force interest rates down, has forced people to just put put money that should not be put in such risky places where it's going to get killed when when there's finally a retreat coming out of it. Um, So I think think the next recession also uh, the amount of, of, of wealth in stock markets and housing makes yeah. the wealth effect a much bigger factor. Wealth effect was not a big issue, an issue in the 50s and right. the 60s. It became one in the 80s, especially the 90s, and ever since, so I think that is a, a real concern here.
1: Then we took a look at Women in power. Gloria Feltz has been at the forefront of women's empowerment issues for decades, formerly at the helm of Planned Parenthood for almost a decade, and now as co-founder of the organization Take the Lead, an initiative designed to prepare and propel women into leadership positions across all sectors by the year 2025. I sat down with Gloria and she explained the steps that she takes to inspire women to take the lead.
8: It's an interesting conversation to have and each company is different. And so we do our best to customize that conversation because what we do is we do training, coaching, role model programs, and thought leadership, a whole package that I found in my own research women actually need to make that next step, frankly, to stay in the game. Sometimes the hardest part is, especially at mid-career, to help women stay in the game. And my belief is if you can help women stay in the game for one generation, we will have this parody thing all solved. We will be there. So companies tend to look at it more from the top down in terms of policies. Surprise, surprise. And, and, and culture is very important. There's no question. And you have to have the commitment from the top. But it's, it's, a, difficult, uh, it's a difficult journey sometimes to get from the good words on the, on the website to actually bringing in really robust programs that enable women to, to stay in the company
1: so what's different about what you offer versus what I'm sure a lot of companies will say I've got this we've got people on staff to do
8: a lot of this we're working on it already we can do it internally we don't need external help in this I think that's fantastic and I I will do everything I can to work within that company and what they do already have but what nobody has that we do and and again this comes from my own research as well as looking at my own career and my own heart (laughs) I guess you could say um, is that uh, I believe women's relationship with power is a critical piece of this. So I focus on helping women deconstruct their understanding of power, which has been in a very sort of male-dominated narrative of scarce resources. Mm -hmm. And once we can make a shift from, it's not about power over, it's the power to do great things. There's not a finite pie. Mm -hmm. The more there is, the more there is. I see women's masks fall off of their faces, and they're like, oh, "I want that. That I want." So then, that gives them the ability to embrace their higher level of intention about what they see themselves as doing, mm-hmm. what they want to be in their careers, and 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 it's joyful as opposed to being a slogging hard work in a culture where they feel like they don't fit.
1: So this sounds like something where you really need to work with the individual rather than with the institution, with the company. Do you find that it's a challenge to engage with the institution on the, the, on the need for this kind of training versus getting individuals
8: excited? Well, I think it's, it's a little bit of both, because you do need to have it coming from all directions. So what I like to do is to start with some conversation with executives around the culture and what their aims and goals are. Is mm-hmm. once I know that, then it's easier to help women know what their or develop their own career trajectory within that. And in our program, we make sure that every woman creates her own strategic leadership action plan that is both a higher level of intentionality, that big, bold, audacious, maybe she never thought she could do this, mm-hmm. but she makes a plan based on our nine leadership power tools and skills to actually achieve that goal and it needs to converge with the organization's strategy. So I need to understand the organization in order to be able to help them, whether it's top-down or bottom-up. Can you give us any specific examples, any success stories or best practices that seems to work across
1: the board, no matter what industry, no matter how much experience one has, or is it something that can't be
8: generalized in any way? Oh, I, it, well, it, it, it's, it's, to me, it feels fairly easy. Uh, it's not, well, I should say it a little differently. It feels simple, although it's not easy. Mm. There's a difference, okay. right? Simple concepts, simple but difficult concepts, to implement. but difficult sometimes to implement. And it does start with knowing yourself. You know, every great leader knows herself or himself really mm-hmm. well, and knows what their value. They know what their values are. They know. Um, they. I, so I help them get in touch with their own power journey, and those moments when they have felt they they were able to take a leap forward. And those moments when they just feel like they can't or or couldn't, things they had to work their way out of, you have to get in touch with those things first. Mm -hmm. Know who you are. Know where you came from. Know where your values are. Yes, right, then. So I think those things are universal. And the greatest leaders always know themselves in that way. And then you have to have the skills and tools to thrive in the world as it is while you're changing it. Do you work with only women or are men part of your program as well as you try to achieve gender parity? I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, Primarily, we work with women. But, what's the split? Like 98% to 2%? Well, you know, it really depends. Uh, uh, We have some programs that we do called gender bilingual communication Mm -hmm. where it's great to have a 50 50 split of men and women because that's all about how to communicate more effectively across gender and culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there really are kind of two cultures that we grow up in, but it also applies in any kind of diversity uh, situation. You have to be able to speak the language Mm -hmm. of, or at least hear the language and understand it Mm -hmm. in order to be an effective communicator across whatever divisional lines there may be.
1: Talk about the greatest myths of female leadership and how much more complex and nuanced that gets when you consider the intersectionality of other
8: issues too. Mm-hmm. I think the greatest myth, and uh, I just saw another, another report last week that said, most people think women don't have the same high level of ambition that men have. Mm-hmm. Well, I found that not to be at all true. It's not about a level of ambition, it's a different socialization around intention that is that that creates different behavior Mm -hmm. between men and women I mean you know boys come out of the womb knowing they own the world because they kinda do and and girls are taught to be nice and sit still and care what other people think about them and that creates very different affect Mm -hmm. within the workplace and so sometimes women's hard work is not recognized because they aren't saying me, 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 me all the time. And women need to learn self-advocate more, mm-hmm. and men need to learn to listen more. And your training goes both
1: ways in trying to provide that context. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here, because before you founded Take the Lead, co-founded Take the Lead, you were president and CEO of Planned Parenthood. You were involved in that organization for three decades. Talk a little bit about how different the conversation on women's health has become over time, especially
8: in the last couple of years. In one respect, it hasn't changed. In one respect, I'm telling you, so little has changed since the organization was founded since the first birth control clinic in the United States over 100 years ago. I mean, it's always been about whether women are going to be able to be equal citizens, be able to be in control of their own bodies and their own fertility and make their own decisions about whether and when they will have children and with whom mm-hmm. they will have children. So that is at the root of what Planned Parenthood is all about. I think that what's different right now is that the organization itself has sort of framed itself as being primarily health care. And that's to a misstep to me. I think that is much smaller than the movement really is. I think the movement really is about whether women are going to have an equal place at life's table, mm-hmm. whether, whether we care enough about our children to want to make sure that they're born loved and wanted and, and to parents who are ready and prepared to, to really take good care of them, and whether just whether, whether women and men ever can reach some kind of, of true equality. In, in, in our country, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's what it's all about. And that's why it's been so natural for me to pivot straight from reproductive rights to gender parity in mm-hmm. all, all elements of society. Because I believe that until women have equal power, equal pay, and equal position, we will keep fighting those same old battles over and over and over and over again. And I just think it's time to get beyond that. So you're saying it's part of the same conversation. And I,
1: I hear what you're saying. But at the same time, um, the circumstances in our world have changed as well. Uh, to, uh, why do you think this approach of focusing in on women's reproductive health is a limiting choice? And how does the current team, the current leadership team, get beyond that?
8: Well, you know, I have to say, I have not been the CEO for a number of years now. And one thing I know is when you leave, you have to leave. Mm-hmm. And whoever comes in next has to be able to do their job as they see fit. So I'm not going to try to tell the current, the current uh, leaders what to do. But I can say that I believe that until we really frame the issue in these larger terms, we will keep fighting the same battles because to me the, women need two things to be fully equal in society. You need to be able to have bodily autonomy mm-hmm. and be able to make your own decisions about your life and your your body and who you, who you will um, have children with and how many children you will have. You need to be able to do that. I mean that is health but it is a lot more than health. It's just much more than health. It's fundamentally about our humanity. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that you need. The second thing that you need is to be able to earn money, to be able to be financially independent. If you have bodily autonomy and you have financial independence, you do not have to be in an abusive situation ever. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be a victim of, of some of the more dire things in society that women have had to deal with over the years you can actually be a full complete citizen and take care of your family and that's what i think we all want you have more control over your fate you have more control over your fate exactly yes gloria i want to come back and and end
1: on take the lead because that's where we started Uh, when it comes to the mission to achieve gender parity you have a very specific deadline the year 2025 why then and why why pick that date Mm -hmm. and how far along would you say we are we 30% 30% there,
8: 60% there? When when I wrote my, my book, No Excuses, Nine Ways Women Can Change How We Think About Power, which is what led me into this exploration of why women hadn't reached parity in spite of the fact that we had opened doors and changed laws, and, and I couldn't figure out why we had been stuck where we were. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to figure out why. And so the studies then said, actually, now it's the same thing. They say the the, the most optimistic projection is 20 years to parity in the United States. So that's what I was basing it on. Got it. Now, I've been an activist for women for, what, 40 years? If I could live another 70, I'd be just happy to. But the odds are not good. So... I just decided we have to do it by 2025, because I can commit to living that long. No, I really, and in all seriousness, I I want to see this in my lifetime. But I also believe this is a strategic inflection moment when we can make it happen. Mm -hmm. I think that it is the first time in history that we have had a a coming together of the business case and the justice case. So we now know that if if women globally had parity in pay, that would add 12 trillion dollars to the global economy. We know that when you bring it down to the individual family in the United States, if women had equal positions and equal pay, that would add half a million to a million dollars over their lifetime cumulatively into the family budget. So, I think that all of the, I think all of the circumstances are there now that weren't there before, mm-hmm. and I think we can speed this thing up. Uh, companies know that they. If they have more women in their leadership, they make more money. And, and and that we've never had before. We've never had that evidence before. So once you have that, you can move a lot faster. You can move a lot
1: faster. When times are good, people and companies are willing to commit resources to uh, gender parity. When times are bad and everyone needs to think about cost cutting, and at some point there's going to be an economic downturn, perhaps a recession, a lot of things that aren't crucial to the bottom line end up getting cast aside Mm -hmm. do you worry that this is something that will be easy to set aside
8: when things get a little bit harder it is true that that training and that sort of thing usually is the first thing cut when there is a downturn but if you think about it a smart company will not only invest in their people at a time like that but in particular will invest in women Mm. and bringing more women through because a company that wants to have the talent pipeline full needs Women to be coming into their organization and staying there. It have we seen that historically? It costs. Well, ha- have you seen? I'm sorry. Have we seen that historically? No, no. But so just well, be, why will it change just, this? Just time? because something hasn't happened doesn't mean. It. Yeah, I've spent my life doing things people think are impossible. So. I, you know, I just think that a smart company, and that's the case that I have to make, mm-hmm. that a smart company will recognize that women have been earning 57% of the college degrees now for decades. When you go to hire people who are prepared in an economy that's based on brains, not brawn, mm-hmm. you want to find those those female employees and you want to keep them happy because it's much more expensive to have to recruit and, and, and retrain than to retain good talent and keep them moving up your pipeline. I hear what you're saying, we've reached a tipping point where you can't ignore this now. Absolutely, you cannot ignore it, and there are more and more women who are prepared mm-hmm. and are saying, you bet, I want to I want to be in that C-suite. I want to be the CEO, and if I don't get to do that, I'm gonna leave and form my own company and make it even bigger than yours. That does
1: it for this episode of What'd You Missed This Week? If you liked this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.